Good morning, everybody. Great to see you, and good morning or afternoon or evening to those of you who are watching online whenever you're watching. Um, just want to throw in one extra announcement. We don't usually do this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Next Friday night is our block party. And if you haven't signed up for that, you don't have to sign up. You can just show up, but we're trying to get a, a general number. We've got food trucks there. We've got yard games. We're going to be meeting our new neighbors. It's our backyard block party. And uh, it goes from 6 to 9. Love to have our community enjoying ourselves together while we welcome this new community that has just moved into our neighborhood over here. So if you plan on coming, let us know. Just put block party on your connect card. If you don't know right now, but you know later, just, just come, just show up. It's gonna be a really fun time together. Well, we're in our fourth week of a six-week series called Everything. We call it a Story of God series. We do these every once in a while because we take a theme and we begin at the beginning of the Bible and we stop at various points in the story of God. And uh, if you're familiar, if you've taken our Story of God course, you know the 10 scenes that we kind of work through in getting a sense of the overall story of God, how it tells the story of Jesus, how it tells this one story. And we're gonna be for the second week in a row in this scene right here that we call the law scene, as God has given the law. It's just before the first king of Israel, the setting that we're looking at today. And the theme that we are tracing through the Bible is uh, how uh, God owns everything and how if we get the conviction, if we grow into that conviction that God actually does own everything, it makes a really big difference in our life. It brings greater peace, it brings greater joy in our life. Today we're looking at one of the keys to possessing what I'm just calling an unassailable core, something that's inside of us, a happiness that is unassailable, that is in the core of our being, something that can weather the difficult storms of life that we all Experience. So I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 24. So that's the fifth book of the Bible. Fifth book, Deuteronomy 24. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. Um, and we are using the New International Version. And while you're turning, I just want to remind you that understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery. And that's why we open our Bibles every week. There's mystery in it, but there's so much that God wants us to know um, and to live, to live out in our lives. And I also want to remind you that if you have friends who are asking questions about, about faith, about the Bible, this is a great place to invite them to come be a part of what we're doing together um, in the Word and being part of our church family. So let's pray uh, the prayer of illumination together that's up on the screen. Heavenly Father, guide us by your Word and Spirit that in your light we may see clearly, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your joy and peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So we started this series on week one focused on joy. And the whole idea of the first sermon was that when we're convinced that everything belongs to God, we experience greater joy. And we went back to Genesis 1, God creating everything. It's his because he created everything. And maybe one of the main reasons it's true that when we discover that God does own everything, we have that sense of conviction. One of the reasons that we probably experience more joy is because of the gratitude that we feel for God. Um, for God's creation, for what he's given us, for the life that we have, the time that we have, everything that we have. 
and there's a close connection between gratitude and happiness. So on week one, I told the story that I want to go back to today. Uh, real quickly, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but just give you the synopsis of it. If you weren't here, you know, it's a little bit better story if you tell the whole thing. But it's about a lady who's sitting on a bench, and she's eating some potato chips while she's sitting reading a book. And a guy comes, he shows up, he sits next to her and starts eating her potato chips. And she's really upset. And uh, he's just smiling. He's just happy. And uh, when she takes a potato chip, he smiles. He leaves, and after he leaves, she discovers her potato chips were a little bit farther back, and she's been eating his potato chips the whole time. And so it's one of those stories where you go back and you start replaying everything. What was everybody thinking? And, and, and when you go back to it, nobody wants to be that lady. <laughs> no one wants to be the lady who's all angry because she's having to share her potato chips. Everybody wants to be that guy who is just smiling. And like, yeah, you know, I'm willing to, to share um, my potato chips with you. And so we talked at, uh, about on that week, we looked at some of the keys to being that guy, to being someone that holds loosely onto things, that's generous, that's willing to, to share. And so I wanna cover one more key today to being a generous person. And, and it's a key to really that generosity coming from this core of this happiness, this joy that's unassailable. And, and so um, that's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to find this key in the book of Ruth. I know I told you to turn to Deuteronomy. Stay there. <laughs> All right. But it's going to be in the book of Ruth. And one of the ways, um, in some ways, this key is in the backstory to one of the main people in the story of Ruth, a man named Boaz. And so we're gonna get reacquainted with the book of Ruth real quickly, or maybe acquainted for the very first time. It's four chapters long, it tells a beautiful story in a beautiful and moving way, and it has a surprise ending. All right, so we're gonna watch the Bible ch Challenge explainer video on this, and then we'll look at that important part of Boaz's backstory that gets to this key to having an unassailable ha happiness at the core of our being. All right, so let's, let's watch the video. The Book of Ruth, it's a brilliant work of theological art and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day -day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter one opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled. And it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem struggling to survive through a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there the father of the family dies and the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore. And so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. And so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees 
But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi, and she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people, and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew, and she laments her tragic fate. Chapter 2 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food, and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character, and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, he prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day, and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz, and she is thrilled. She says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, this family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow, and she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up, and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry her. Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family, and he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day, and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these recent events. In chapter 4, it all comes together. It turns out, at the last minute, Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But at the last second, this family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter 1. So the death of the husband and the sons is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing, it's even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. And this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth 
and Boaz. And each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place. This story is beautifully designed. And that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story. And that's how little God is mentioned. Right? The characters talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God doing anything directly in the story. And that's its brilliance. Because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is punishing her, but actually the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life, but not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer who's full of generosity and loyalty. And so God uses his integrity combined with Ruth's boldness to save Naomi and her family. And so this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human decision and will. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And that leads to the real end of the story. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Oved, was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, these seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story are woven into God's grand story of redemption for the whole world. And so the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives as well. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. All right, so you got a little review there, beautiful story, well told and illustrated, and um, in that surprise ending, this is the story of David's lineage, who is the story of Jesus' lineage. So there's a, a part of the story of Ruth that I think is, is generally overlooked, and it's a decision that Boaz has made at some point in his life that makes everything that happens in the story even possible. Ruth meets Boaz because he's practicing compassionate generosity in a culture of self-absorption. All right, so this story happens in the time of the judges. Um, in the opening words of Ruth, it says, in the days when the judges ruled. So it's placing it in that book, in that history, about a 400-year history before the first king from the time of Joshua to the first king. Now, it talked about it being really dark days. The book of Judges is arguably one of the most depressing and by the end, disgusting books in the Bible. Not because the book is disgusting, but because of what it describes as things get worse uh, and worse. And, and so, there's this refrain that happens throughout the book of Judges. If you've read it, if you've ever studied it, you know this refrain, basically what it is. It comes in Judges chapter two, where it says, after the whole generation, this whole generation, this is at the very beginning, so the generation it's talking about is Joshua's generation, which was the, the Moses' successor, Joshua. After they had been gathered to their ancestors, meaning they had died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil 
in the eyes of the Lord. And that's the refrain. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's a refrain that comes back over and over and over again in the story. And it, the evil gets worse and worse and worse. So much so that even if you read the judges, you go, God raises a judge like to help the people. And you go, this judge is a horrible person. <laughs> and you go, yeah, yeah, the leader reflects the people. The leader that God raises actually is reflecting the people. And so it just gets worse and worse and worse. These are not, uh, certainly after about the first three, these are not heroes um, of, of the story. So finally, um, later in the story, to even intensify it even more, it starts this refrain, everyone did as they saw fit. That's that self-absorption. I'm going to do what I think is right instead of following the Lord's way. So in the days of the judges, when everyone was doing what they saw fit, Boaz was faithfully practicing the compassionate generosity required by the biblical law. He allowed the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners to glean from his fields. So look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're going to see what God had said to the people of Israel. This is what you're going to do. This is given to them while they're in the wilderness. When you go into the promised land, this is what you're going to do. This is what, how you're going to live your lives. So beginning in verse 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. God is saying, I want to bless you, but I want to see you doing this. I really want to see you not like taking every last bit. I want to see you taking care of people who are in need. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the fatherless, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Then in Leviticus, uh, same law, gives a little bit more detail. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. This is what Ruth is doing. She's going and she's gathering from the edges of the field. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So the law required a generosity that was founded on compassion and, um, and on restorative justice. It runs throughout the whole law, this restorative justice. How can we restore people to what God has intended for them when they're suffering? So in a day and time when the people of Israel were doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and doing what was right in their own eyes, how many farmers do you think were following that law? <laughs> Boaz, and maybe a few others. Uh, as you read the book of Judges, you know they are not following this law. It took a great act of faith. It took a, a great act of obedience to leave so much of the crop behind. You're not gonna do that unless you have a commitment to God and to what he has said life should be like. So I want you to think about that for a moment. Think of a farmer 
looking back at his field after a harvest and seeing all that is left behind in order to be in compliance with the law of Moses. I just imagine how the farmer who is doing that looks behind, sees what is left behind, and then looks over at his neighbors every day, and he sees that they don't allow gleaning, that take, they take every last bit of what falls to the ground, and he sees that they have more than he has because they have taken more from the field. Think about that for a moment. Now here's the question that's really not difficult to answer. Which farmer would you have been? Which farmer would you have been? Again, Ruth meets Boaz precisely because he's practicing compassionate generosity in a culture where people are extremely self-absorbed. And as a result, King David, as well as King Jesus, descends from Ruth and Boaz. This is a part of the story that I think is oftentimes overlooked. I mean, his generosity is spoken of, but to think about what it took in that day when nobody else is doing this to practice that kind of generosity. So um, I also want you to see that people who practice biblically-based compassionate generosity possess an unassailable happiness at the core of their being. I want us to see why that is. And, and I think that you find a significant key to this, um, to this kind of happiness in Boaz's backstory. When other farmers in Israel were driven to accumulate more and more, Boaz evidently felt that he had enough to share. He felt that he had enough to share and he believed his enough was a gift from God. It wasn't all his, all of it, all of it was a gift from God. There's a scene that I love in Wendell Berry's book, Jaber Crow, and I've used this illustration before um, along these same lines, so uh, you might remember it. So in the, in the novel, uh, Jaber Crow is a small town barber, and the whole story is told from his uh, first person perspective, and he goes back to the beginning of his life and how he lost his parents and became an orphan, how his grandparents started raising him, and eventually his grandparents die and he's sent off to an orphanage, and as he becomes a young man, he leaves the orphanage, and he decides to go back to his hometown. And on his way, there's a successful businessman from his hometown that he sees, a hog farmer. And he, this hog farmer picks him up and gives him a ride part of the way because he's on his way to Lexington, this is in Kentucky, he's on his way to Lexington, and so he picks up Jaber. And before leaving him, he says this hog farmer gave him some friendly advice for his life as a young man and slipped $5, brand new $5 bill, big sum of money back then, and a big sum for a guy who had run out of money <laughs> at this point. Um, and so there's a, a little bit of a complication though, and that's that for a reason that he can't even figure out himself, when he introduced himself to the hog farmer, he didn't introduce himself as Jaber. <laughs> he gave a false name. And uh, he's not sure why, why he did that. Um, he doesn't know about the $5 until a little bit later. He finds the $5 that had, been, that had been slipped secretly. And he can't believe this guy did this for him. So that $5 goes a long ways. 
uh, to helping him get back to his hometown where he becomes eventually the town barber. The town barber dies, he's an apprentice and he becomes the town barber. But he knows that someday he's gonna run into this guy and he's gonna have to confess his lie. And uh, so he saves up the $5. So when he confesses, he can give the guy $5 back. And one day, lo and behold, the man comes in to his barber shop uh, for a haircut and he's trying to figure out how to confess his lie. So I'm just gonna read you from the book. I said, Mr. Hanks, I'm sure you remember uh, that you did me a great favor a couple of years ago. He said, I'm sure I don't, young man. So I had to tell him the story of arriving to Lexington, of his good advice, uh, my later discovery of the new $5 bill in my jacket pocket. I was in the midst of confessing my lie and acknowledging my right identity, which he undoubtedly already knew, when he said, son, you've got the wrong man. He not only denied that he remembered what I remembered, he denied that he had hauled a load of hogs to Lexington that year. He didn't remember, um, he, he didn't remember when he had ever hauled a load of hogs to Lexington. He handed me a dollar bill. I took a five from under my cigar box then I ha that I had waiting for him and I wrapped it, his change in it. He stripped the coins out from the bill with his thumb as if he was hauling peas and he laid the bill down onto the back bar. Son, he said going out, I already got $5. There's a lot going on here in this story. The guy, Mr. Hanks, is lying. He did indeed <laughs> do all of those things. He's lying and it seems he'd rather lie than to have to take back that $5. <laughs> or even lose the blessing of having done it, you know, anonymously. And so by lying, he takes away the obligation of Jaber paying him and keeps his, you know, what he did hidden from others. He'd rather lie than get noticed. Now, I'm not saying that it's right to lie, um, but that's what he does. That seems to be the whole motivation of what he does. Now, if you know Wendell Berry, the, the author, anything about him, you know that he probably has Matthew 6 in mind uh, as he's telling this story. If, um, where it says, Jesus says, if your giving gets the applause of others, you give and people applaud. He says, that's your reward. <laughs> that's it. But if you give just for God, for God's sake, for God glory, God's glory, you're gonna get God's reward. Now, the implication is, I think Jesus is saying is, God's reward is gonna be much better than applause. <laughs> and, and he's saying that God's reward, as he continues in the passage, God's reward is an eternal reward, not salvation, but reward in eternity. And, and so, um, again, the implication is an eternal reward is much better than a temporal reward, like applause and people looking up to you. For some reason, um, when I, read, when I heard that, actually I was listening to the book, uh, that, that line, I already got $5, it really got my attention, it grabbed my imagination. Um, he's saying in part, I don't need your $5 because I already have enough. I don't need it, I have enough. Okay, so here's how it hits me. How many followers of Jesus fail to steward their money 
and their possessions faithfully and generously because they think they don't have enough. The $5 they have in their pocket is not enough in their minds, so they hold onto it tightly. I have no idea what, what percentage, I'm sure somebody's done a study of this, what percentage of the crop is left behind by the gleaning laws, but let's just say it amounts to five to 10% of their profits. On the one hand, the farmer could look at that five to 10% and think, that's a lot to leave behind. If I invested in more land, next year I could have more. And then if I do it again, next year I could have more. On the other hand, the farmer could look at that five to 10% and say, I have 900% more than that amount. I have that amount times nine. Thank you, Lord, for the abundance of your gift. It's all yours anyway. Use this portion that I leave in the fields for those in need, for your purposes. In a world where most of us are driven to accumulate more and more, do you and I believe we have enough to share and that our enough is a gift from God? When you believe that you have enough to share and that what you have is a gift from God, you have something at the core of your being that is unassailable. There is a joy and a peace at the core of your being when you hold that conviction. You, your joy is not dependent on accumulating more and more or keeping what you have. Envy, jealousy, greed, are not only deadly sins, they suck the joy out of your life. They just suck the joy out of your life. Gratitude and a sense of having enough from God brings joy down deep in the core of who we are and it's unassailable. Recently read an article on what Paul says about contentment and uh, contentment is actually a broader topic than what I'm talking about today, but it, but it applies, our topic kind of fits under that broader topic. And um, in the article, the author is talking about what Paul says in Philippians chapter four, when he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I wanna read you uh, what the author says about this. He says, it's hard to read this without some degree of intrigue. Now, if you've read this all your life, you just, right? Uh, but try to read it with fresh eyes. It's hard to read this without some degree of intrigue. Content in any and every situation? The Apostle Paul wrote this while he was unmarried, imprisoned, unjustly, constantly persecuted, actively misrepresented with, will with ill intent and relentlessly tempted to live in regret. For what? For persecuting Christians for years. We rightly marvel at Paul's statement, but one word in this famous verse is often overlooked, the third one. Did you notice it? Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content. This one word is enough to provide mountains of hope for every reader, reminding us that our past mistakes, present difficulties, and unknown futures do not consign us to a life of discontent. 
According to this verse, contentment is not something one naturally has or doesn't have, it's something she learns. Yes, contentment is a rare jewel, but it is a rare jewel that any Christian can experience. The same, what he's saying there about contentment applies to the joy of knowing God's provision is enough. And enough to enjoy it and enough to share from it. This is learnable. So how do we learn it? I wanna just very quickly give you three things. This is not in your outlines, so you'll have to write a little bit more furiously. It's not filling in the blanks. The first one is acknowledge God's ownership and hold things loosely. It's what we've been talking about throughout this whole series. Hold things loosely. So we talked last week about our own children, grandchildren, nieces and nephews, our best friends, our spouse. They belong to God and we should not hold, you know, we need to loosen our grip. This applies to our time. This applies to our money. This applies to our possessions. A second way that we can learn contentment is to pour ourselves into what's eternal and important to God. Pour ourselves into those things. Jesus says that our hearts follow what we invest in. We invest in certain things. If that's where we're invested, that's where our heart is gonna be. So giving to God's mission, serving God and his mission, a giving of our time, re rejecting a life that is self-absorbed and said, dedicating our talent, our time, our treasure to God's priorities, it forms our hearts. It forms our hearts. It forms our loves. It forms our desires. And then the third thing to learn contentment is grow to know God better. Grow to know God better. Now, we do this by engaging in spiritual practices that instill in us a conviction that God is trustworthy. As we get to know God better, the more we know we can trust this good God. Practices. Call them spiritual disciplines. Time praying. Time in God's word. Time worshiping together. Time fellowshipping together. Uh, giving of our time, giving of our resources. These are all practices. But to remember, these practices are all relational. Prayer, studying the Bible is about getting to know God better. It's about being in a really, prayer is actually a communing with God. Reading the scripture should be a communing with, communing with God as we're listening for our good God, our gracious God, to be speaking to us through his word. That's why he gave us his word. So it's relational. But it's also a practice, it's an exercise. I was listening to a podcast this morning and, and uh, the guest said, uh, can you imagine if you wanted to learn the piano, how to play the piano? And, and um, so you went home and listened to podcasts about how to play the piano. <laughs> and that's all you did. Uh, or you went to church and you, you know, or you went to a, a piano place and listened to sermons on how to play the piano. <laughs> you learn by practicing. You learn by practicing. My, my hope every single week, all of our, our preaching team, our hope is not that this moment is going to change people's lives, but as a result of this moments together, we go out into our week 
and we practice what we're actually learning. Because that's, that is where life change comes. That's the only place where life change comes. You can, you can have a life change in direction in your mind in here, but it has to little by little be learned in our daily lives. And as we learn that our God is good and we get to know him better, we learn that he's trustworthy and that just gives a great peace and great joy deep in our lives. And somewhere along the way, Boaz learned he could trust God enough to be content, to know that he had enough, to be generous. And you and I can learn that too. You and I can possess that kind of happiness in our core that is unassailable. Um, it comes from our loves and desires being formed around God and what's eternal. So we begin our time of response. Let's take the bread and the cup and remember what Jesus did for us and what it teaches us about him. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Scriptures tell us that whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you. We thank you for, we thank you that you are a God of joy deep in your core. We thank you that the scriptures, your scriptures tell us that you sing over us, that you love us. Help us to learn to trust you. And in learning to trust you, we make the lives of people around us better. We not only are more willing to be generous with what we have, but we spread joy to the people around us. Help us to be people of joy. Help us to follow you in everything. Help us to trust you with everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.